I now sat in every chair in the front, so I think it was my turn to come back up to the podium. I'd like to offer some comments on these four papers and then really open things up to the floor for comments, questions, suggestions, and so forth. At some point during that whole process, we should give people at the front here an opportunity to address any of the points that are raised, so we'll try to work that in as well. Well, I think you could see that what we have here on this panel are four really excellent papers. They're very much worthy of your attention, and I hope you will take the opportunity to read each of them. They demonstrate the value of new academic data collections that are focused on 2008. The black and Latino oversamples that are in ANES yield genuinely representative samples of two important groups, increasingly important groups, particularly in the case of Latinos, and they provide sufficient ends to support subgroup analysis uh, or in-group analysis and to compare it with the general electorate and, and the white electorate. Uh, the CCAP December to November panel supports analysis of how voters change over the course of what this year was a very divisive nomination campaign and into the general election itself. Uh, as a side note, I think I would say that as is the case with any new data, one looks for some validating information on the parameter estimates for this particular data set. Uh, one would like to see some demographics there. Uh, I think one of the, the people presented what the, the vote result was in their sample. I think the CCAP maybe uh, versus the, the actual vote. Maybe it was an NES comparison. Is why I think it's very useful when the data are new to present this every time, even if you presented it somewhere else before, to replicate that here. Uh, I would also add, in the case of ANES, that the advantage it provides in 2008 is that we now have a time series that goes back 60 years. It's an incredible asset. And we're able to benchmark what we see in 2008 against earlier times, and that's a very valuable addition as well. The major take-home messages from these data from these different perspectives and different data sets are that powerful race effects were present in 2008. There's, no, there's a consensus on that. There's no question about that. Also that Obama's race was a source of both voter support and voter opposition. And voter support not just from black voters, but from racial liberals as well. And this was an advantage to Obama and to the Democrats in 2008. Also, there's something that really isn't said very much in these data. A lot was made in the media of the so-called Bradley effect. The respondents really wouldn't report their true sentiments. Uh, and as a result of that, the polls would overestimate the kind of support that a black candidate would end up getting in the general election. Uh, that does not seem to be the case in these data sets. Uh, and I've always felt that the... the you know, all the hullabaloo about the Bradley effect was somewhat misplaced. And in fact, the evidence over the years is that it might have been there early on, but it is pretty much dissipated over time. Well, it's not present in, in these, these data sets. Uh, by the same token, the, these papers show, I think, three failings, or share three failings, though they are so good that one hesitates to dwell on them, though I will. <laughs> I have to say something. your job. <laughs> it's my job. You know, I have to play my role. None of them fully resolves the question of how much Obama's race on net 
was an asset or a liability in 2008. I think they could estimate that. And they come close to it, but they don't quite do that. And the real question is, you know, would he have won had 2008 been a normal year and the economy had not tanked in September of, of 2008, two months before the election itself? Uh, or had the outgoing Bush administration not left such a negative legacy for John McCain to, uh, to carry with him? And the primary question here, I think, and it, it's to me at least an interesting one, is how many voters, many of them Democratic partisans, were cross-pressured in this election? They knew they really couldn't vote Republican or shouldn't vote Republican, given what had been happening over the last four, maybe eight years. On the other hand, they weren't sure they were quite ready to vote for an African-American for president. And you see these cross-pressures all over the place. You see it to some degree. We saw it in Ohio in the primary elections. You see it in the data that, that, uh, that were presented on, on racial resentment in the primaries. Uh, you see it, I think, all the way up almost to election day. You hear it from reporters who were interviewing people on their doorsteps and hearing this curious amalgam of feelings about the Democratic uh, nominee. And so it would have been really neat to, in any of these surveys, to try to identify who these cross-pressured voters were and to see over time how they tried in one way or another to deal with these cross-pressures. Most of them came home, at least who were Democrats, but not all of them. Uh, and in fact, some of that, I think, is buried in the lack of turnout among certain groups within what heretofore had been a Democratic electorate. So that's one thing. Uh, secondly, they all focus on the popular vote of a national electorate, a focus all of us who do survey research share. But the real question, of course, at the presidential level is how the electoral college outcome is affected by the kinds of factors they consider. Now, the candidates know this. And, of course, the candidates and their campaigns put most of their resources into the so-called battleground states. Uh, that's where they're looking for an effect. Other states they pretty much take for granted. Uh, it seems to me these papers could actually address that issue. Uh, they could take a look maybe at the battleground states versus, you know, they can't do state-by-state -state analysis very easily, uh, but they could take a look at the battleground states. And there's some questions that I think are interesting ones about that. For example, is the effect of racial resentment felt most in states like Mississippi, where 11% white electorate voted for Obama, 11%. Uh, states that were not going to determine the outcome of the election because they were too one-sided. What was the effect of racial resentment versus the positives that Obama's race brought to the contest in states like Ohio and Virginia and others that truly were battleground states and the states in which the election was, was really decided? Thirdly, the papers pay little attention to the other decision that voters make in an election, the decision to turn out to vote. Some touch on this a bit, but they don't really pursue it adequately. In 2008, this involved both demobilization, oops, sorry about that. I won't thump the podium. <laughs> in 2008, that involved both demobilization and mobilization. And let me just say a word about each. Uh, vote turnout figures at the county level, this interesting map that the New York Times presented after the, the election, suggests that some Republicans, maybe Christian conservatives, one would presume that, and some Democrats, probably racial conservatives, 
may have sat at home rather than have to choose between two unpalatable options that, that faced them. On the mobilization side, the Obama campaign was especially effective at mobilizing voters on its behalf, especially it appears in the battleground states, where it had launched massive ground war efforts. Uh, the exit polls show, for example, that it outcontacted the Republicans in, in all of the battleground states except West Virginia, where it didn't do very much, actually, uh, at least where this question was asked in, in the exit polls. That kind of question, by the way, is especially hard to address from the podium of the CCAP data because it's a sample of registered voters and, I think, and you can confirm this for me, a sample of voters who were registered as of December 2007. And so it probably missed, surely missed, if that's the case, it missed the massive efforts that the Obama campaign in particular made to try to bring new voters into the polling places to vote for Obama in, in 2008. Okay, so those are general comments. Let me turn to each of the papers separately and make a few comments. Uh, the Clark paper shows clearly that many Americans harbor racial resentments and that they were important as direct motivators of the vote in 2008. What it also shows to some degree, and this is touched on in, in other papers as well, is that racial, racial resentments are important indirectly as well, in that they're embedded in partisanship. The Democratic Party is regarded, particularly in the South, but I think in, in, in the rest of the country as well, as a party that is very sympathetic to civil rights for African Americans and Latinos, the Republican Party not so much in those categories. Uh, and so I think that in addition to this racial resentment factor that sort of stands alone with direct effects, there is one also embedded in partisanship uh, that probably was there all along, even I think Herb and Chris made reference to this, even back in, in, in the Dukakis uh, and, and Bush contest of, of 1988. Uh, and that's, I think, something to, to very much bear in mind. Uh, the Clark paper also does an excellent job, uh, it particularly does an excellent job, of calling to our attention the influence of Balaam's issues on the 2008 <laughs> result, especially, obviously, the performance of the economy. Uh, I think they got it right that McCain was probably the best candidate the GOP could come up with in 2008. Uh, and that Valence issues, largely the economy, were able to overcome the, the effects of racial resentment on the vote, at least overcome them to a considerable degree. If 2008 was a Valence election, of course, it may not have been as transformational as we think, because Valence forces, as we know, recede over time, received across the board. But beyond valence issues, I'm not sure that I'm persuaded that, that what Harold and his colleagues have done qualifies as a valence politics model. And let me talk about that just a little bit. What is the case for partisan allegiance as a valence variable? Is it any more than its flexibility in reaction to valence issues? Does this flexibility require a reconceptualization of party ID as a short-term force, which is to some degree what they do, or is it rather the result of poor measurement? If 80% of all respondents, including independents, were stable in partisanship over six panel waves, I would take that as pretty good evidence that partisanship is important as an enduring, uh, an enduring heuristic or an enduring allegiance. 
Uh, and also as evidence maybe that the problem lies more with measurement than with conceptualization. Uh, I suspect that their 2009 book or their POQ article in 2009 may clarify these issues more, so I invite you all to oh, buy the book, Carol told me this time, uh, and, and to download the article so that it shows up on, on the various reports we turn into our deans to show that, that, that people are paying attention to our work. And then I would also add that, that I'm not persuaded that candidate image is a valence variable. Does it warrant inclusion as a right-hand side variable in the first place, uh, given its close relationship to the vote? And in what sense is it a valence variable, at least in terms of Don Stokes' classic conceptualization of that term? Okay, let me turn to the Tesler and Sears paper. Uh, I think when the book is published, and I think it's probably soon, is that, is that right? August, okay, that's not so soon. We just have August. Uh, when it's published, I think it will be the source on the impact of race across the broader electorate in, in 2008. It will be a very valuable source because they do a thorough, thorough job of, of exploring the impact of race. Most notable is its careful attention that's paid to the role, of course, of racial resentment throughout 2008. I especially liked their focus on the primary elections and how Hillary Clinton, of all people, became the candidate of the racial resenters on the Democratic side. Uh, and John Edwards, I think, to some degree as well. Uh, very interesting change in, in, in things. Uh, and, of course, they focus on both the negative and the positive sides of that racial resentment variable, and I think that's very important as well. They also find, and I'll just touch on this very quickly because I mentioned it before, the racial resentment was embedded in party allegiances prior to 2008. An important point that could have been emphasized across the board here. And the, the thing I want to say, I sort of said it a, a minute ago, is what does it tell us about the nature of the modern Democratic Party that all three of its major candidates for the nomination in 2008, including Edwards, attracted racial resentment? at least early on. Uh, I think that's the embeddedness of racial resentment within Democratic Party affiliations and Democratic images. Uh, the other thing that, that maybe I, I, I have to say, and I'll pick up on something that President Obama himself has said, that, that Obama's race didn't have to be primed in 2008. As he put it just a few weeks ago, I was black before I became president, and I thought that was inappropriate. <laughs> His approach, of course, was to try to, to neutralize it. Uh, I think the paper does need to recognize more than it does, at least in its current version, the importance of what Harold and his colleagues emphasize in their paper, and that is valence issues, particularly the economy. Uh, the paper, the, the, uh, you know, the one on symbolic racism, shows that, that Obama does better in November than he had done earlier in the campaign across all levels of racial resentment even if the relationship between racial resentment and the vote remains unchanged. And that suggests a valence force there. It's pushing everybody up. Uh, that the pre-election vote predictions were on target despite ignoring financial system collapse in September, after which the polls show that Obama pulled away from McCain, does indeed signal as well that valence forces were very powerful, and they may have gone a long way towards uh, overcoming the racial hostilities that were out there, although we don't know exactly whether they passed them up or, or, or 
just, uh, just reduce them. Uh, turning to the Barreto and Segura paper, the paper I think does an excellent job of taking advantage of the availability of black and Latino oversamples. Uh, we sometimes don't know how exciting it's going to be to see results we get for the first time and how it really reveals some incorrect assumptions that we had all along about the behavior of these particular groups in the electorates. Uh, they, they examined three questions and they talked about that and I won't go into those uh, but they surely justify the oversample of blacks and Latinos and demonstrate the complexities of voting behavior in what has become an increasingly heterogeneous society and, and electorate. One wonders what other groups would benefit from similar treatment. And the one that came to mind was evangelicals that don't tend to be treated as a group per se and it would be interesting to, to kind of unpack them and see what's going on inside that, that group. Uh, the major take-home message in, in this paper is that racial resentments were not a significant factor for Latinos, certainly not as they were for whites. And this has implications <coughs> that go well beyond 2008. There were some other results that struck me as particularly interesting and worthy of, of further exploration. One is the lack of a class divide among either blacks or Latinos. Uh, the second one is that Republicans drew more support from Latinos who expressed fundamentalist religious beliefs, maybe Protestants, I don't know, I, I can't unpack that, but not among regular churchgoers, who may be a more Catholic group than a Protestant group. That, too, is very interesting, and, and I'm sure they will be looking at that more carefully. Also, liberal conservative ideology is more meaningful and more consequential for whites than it is for either blacks or Latinos. It isn't all that consequential for whites, but when you compare them with these two minority groups, the, the difference is, is rather astounding. Now, is that a function of education, or is it a function of something more fundamental about the penetration of partisan dialogue to the American public, particularly to, to minority groups within that public? I want to raise just a couple of issues about the paper, which I think can and, and should be addressed in subsequent versions. I fully understand why they might choose to use pre-election vote preference instead of post-election vote reports for African Americans. It's kind of hard to make much of the three people, I believe it is, uh, who, who, uh, who were blacks who voted for, for McCain. I mean, you could do good case studies, and I'm sure we would all be, be entranced by those, but there, you know, there's just not much that can be done. Uh, it's probably only, what, six or seven once you use the, the uh, what is it, the October report. Not, not many more, anyway. Uh, and what I would have liked to have seen is, is a little more validation of what difference that makes. Uh, one thing you could do, I suppose, is take a look at the exit poll results, which I think paid the black vote at about 95% rather than, than 98 or 99 uh, what explains that difference? You also could maybe take the pre-election wave of ANES and, and do a split half there uh, and see if that indeed makes a difference. But they, they, you know, they obviously have to make this decision. They have to use a pre-election variable. They know that there's some consequences for doing that. It, it, it would be good to know uh, what these consequences may be. Then the other point that I want to make is that, that Latinos, of course are a very diverse group. 
They are united mostly by common language roots. Not necessarily common language, because not all Latinos speak Spanish, uh, <coughs> certainly not the newer generations. Uh, but they are divided by politically consequential differences in, in national origin. They talk about this in the paper, and I think it's worthwhile to address these differences, as the authors do. But on the other hand, the sample sizes for some of these groups, particularly Cubans and Central Americans, not, not, Mexicans, not including Mexicans, are pretty small. And you begin to wonder how stable those estimates are and how much one ought to, to depend upon those. Uh, my, my back of the envelope calculations, I was thinking about this last night, and I wasn't able to take a look at the NES data, suggest that, that the sample is heavily Mexican-American and Puerto Rican. Uh, maybe 40% or so Mexican-American. I'm just guessing. <coughs> maybe more than that. Because uh, you've got to take into account who are citizens and who are not, and that becomes a very messy calculation. Uh, but again, the number of Cubans and Central and South Americans and other Car Caribbean Latinos, whoever they may be, Dominicans, I guess, uh, are, are going to be very small. On the other hand, you know, by looking at these groups and by looking at a Latino oversample, this can really be, 2008 can really be the first step in building a time series of data, one hopes, on Latino pan-ethnic solidarity to see if differences of origin give way to a shared identity, perhaps driven by growing anti-Latino hostility in certain parts of the electorate, uh, and will lead to even stronger Latino support for Democrats. Uh, interesting questions for the future. Let me now turn to the Weisberg and, and Devine paper. 2008 was an unconventional election in many, many respects. And this paper does an excellent job of concentrating on two of them. The first, of course, is that Obama was the first African-American candidate to represent a major party in the general election campaign. So the question is, what role does, does, does his race or did his race play? And all of them have treated that, and Herb and Chris do it as well in their paper. And then also, 2008 was one of only three succession elections in the last four decades without a sitting president running for re-election. So the question is, how might that have mattered in 2008? And they do a particularly good job, I think, of focusing on that as well. Uh, by comparing 2008, or, well, excuse me, by comparing a variety of different measures of racial attitudes, they confirm that racial resentment should be the principal vehicle for analysis of racial attitude effects and kind of confirm what the other papers do in, in, uh, in, in this panel. By benchmarking 2008 against 2000 and 1988, it continues what Herb has been doing over the years, which has been a very productive focus on succession elections as a special type of presidential contest. However, Without further justification, the focus on pairing these two particular factors seems strained for 2008, missing the major story of the 2008 election. Race, of course, is, is part of the major story. But the other part of the major story is the valence issue, not succession necessarily. And by focusing on succession, you end up not comparing the 2008 election with some other contests that would be very interesting ones to look at in terms of valence and the effects that valence issues have. 2008 was unique in another way, and that's the first, that it was the first open seat contest 
since 1952 that do not feature a president seeking re-election or a vice president seeking to succeed his party's president. And given this, it is little wonder that succession effects are weaker than in 1988 and more akin to 2000, when Gore, though he was the vice president, was very reluctant to hitch his wagon to the Clinton presidency. In fact, if, you, if, if we were sitting in the living room of John McCain's Sedonia retreat, he has to be cursing himself because of his links to Bush. First, in 2000, when Bush defeats him for the nomination using a very racist campaign, at least in, in South Carolina and maybe beyond that, and then, who, because of his performance in office, denies McCain a good shot at the presidency in 2008. Uh, I'm sure he's saying that, and I'm sure the language is as colorful as we would enjoy. Uh, he, he was saying that. Uh, more generally, I question whether the succession effect is a broader generalization, quote, unquote, of retrospective voting, and whether Bush popularity is not better conceptualized as a retrospective effect rather than a succession effect, retrospective valence effect. And as I said before, it would have been valuable to see race effects compared across all recent presidential elections, not just 88 and 2004, to assess both their short-term influence, if it's there at all, and the extent to which it's become incorporated in, in party ID. Uh, in this respect, the succession effect focus is a weakness of the paper rather than that a strength. Okay, finally, in closing, let me place these papers in the context of the conference theme. Was 2008 a transformational election with respect to race? First, I should say what I think all of you know, and that is that few elections per se are transformational. It depends much more on what the winner does with the opportunity to govern, and in this case, especially how the administration Perform, the Obama administration performs on the economy. If, if FDR in 1933 had followed his, his campaign promises not to really do very much to address the economy, uh, it's quite conceivable that 1936 would have been the transformational election, back in the direction of the Republicans, but of course that's a, you know, something we, we really don't know. Uh, the realignment literature, such as it is, and it's taken quite a battering over time, uh, it tends to emphasize the cumulative effect of sequences of elections rather than a single election and of governance and government performance in between. And I think both of those are, are important. A second point. Uh, 2008 allowed voters to vent their racial resentments in ways that had been veiled before, at least in national elections. Were these racial resentments more concentrated in the South it would be interesting to, to see that. Will these voters be mollified, at least some of them, now that Obama is governing, especially if he performs well in solving national problems, particularly the economy? Uh, in that day, I, I, I'm reminded of the election, the two elections that Harold, Rose, Harold, excuse me, Harold Washington ran in Chicago for mayor. Uh, in 1983, that election was as polarized as you could ever see. Uh, he won 52 to 48. It was heavily polarized in a racial way, uh, with Latinos and blacks voting heavily for him, whites voting heavily against him, even for somebody who was expected to be a non-entity as the Republican candidate. By the next election, his re-election, that polarization had been dampened 
Uh, he won that vote 54 to 43%. Uh, there still was this racial ethnic breakdown in the vote, but it wasn't as severe or as serious or as sharp as it had been just a few years before. And the reason I think was, or the reasons were twofold. One was that blacks in particular, who were very excited when Harold Washington was elected as mayor and had very high expectations for outcomes, found that Harold Washington was like other mayors. Uh, he wanted to govern the whole city. He was cross-pressured in a variety of ways. He didn't follow through on all of his promises, or at least what they thought were promises. And so their enthusiasm for him was, was dampened, and that was reflected mostly in, in lower turnout in, in that next election. On the other hand, Spice, on the other hand, Whites figured out that you know, he wasn't all that bad after all. Uh, we were very fearful of what things would be like once he got into office. Uh, it didn't turn out that way. There was still a lot of polarization in Chicago, believe me, uh, mostly in the city council early on. Uh, but I think that what we see there is in some ways a transformational effect that we could see after 2008, depending upon performance, uh, with the Obama administration vis-a-vis -vis the electorate. And finally, 2008 was also notable for what was mostly absent in all of this analysis. And that is a significant role for religion in accounting for the vote. And remember, religion had been pretty prominent in previous elections. Uh, more so religiosity and, and religious belief. Uh, and there are shadows of it here and there in these data. But, but uh, it really was not significant in 2008. And the question is, has it run its course in, in terms of American electoral debate? Uh, has race replaced religiosity and religious fundamentalism as a key influence on the vote? I don't think we know for sure. Current debates within the GOP, by the way, suggest that religion may not be gone as a key factor in voting behavior and may come back in, in the next national election, 2010 or, or, or 2012. Well, let me end on that point and open the floor. Maybe is there anybody here who wants to comment, or should we just turn turn to the audience? Okay, Alan, go ahead. Well, well first of all, I, I would dispute your statement that religiosity no longer was a big factor in 2008. Because in the NES data, for example, the gap in, in vote for Obama among whites between those who are most regular churchgoers, for example, and those who are least is larger than it was in 2004. So it's not gone. Not at all. I mean, it doesn't turn up in these models, partly because there's so many other variables. Well, it's really mediated there. by, yes. by issues and yeah. ideology. Yeah. 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 But yeah. that gets me to my mm -hmm. next point, which is I wanted to uh, ask about the idea of a valence election <coughs> and about, uh, in Herb's <coughs> tables, uh, uh, comparisons of the effect of ideology with racial resentment. And I'm, I'm a little... Uh, uh, I'm not sure what to make of that because, uh, I mean, first of all, I'm not sure how valence, uh, how the valence issues are being measured exactly here, but uh, where are those coming from? Where are those judgments about if it's which party would do a better job on the economy or um, or, or even the candidate uh, trait questions we know are very strongly influenced by party, by ideology, by issues, uh, by a lot of other things. Uh, if valence issues were so important, if this was really all about the economy, and I'm not saying the economy was not a factor, it certainly was, 
But, you know, why did Obama only get 53% of the vote? And why did 90% plus of Republicans vote for McCain? 90% plus of Democrats voted for Obama. I mean, the first thing you notice about this election is this was an extremely partisan election. Uh, what happened during the campaign, you know, as the uh, uh, Michaels data showed, you know, partisanship, the effect of partisanship got stronger uh, during, the, during the campaign. Um, and in Herb, in your results, you know, when you're comparing some of these effects, and ideology drops out, you know. But maybe that's because ideology is not only, an in, you know, indirectly affecting the election through its influence on, for example, Bush evaluation, which is strongly related to ideology. But you're making ideology compete with other things in that equation that is very correlated with issues, for one thing. Uh, so, of course, if you put ideology and your preferences on gay marriage and you know, health care and a bunch of other issues in there together, you're really kind of guaranteeing almost that they're not going to have a significant. So I think you have to be very careful about comparing these sorts of effects when you've got things. And finally, the racial resentment questions, you know, do correlate pretty highly with, highly with ideology. Uh, and in fact, you know, there's been an argument that what they're really measuring, to some extent at least, is ideology. Um, so I guess I'd leave it here to because I think things have come apart. Oh, Chris, part. others want to comment on that? Well, I, I, you know, one of the things to know right away, so some of us are old enough to remember the uh, concept of the funnel of causality. And so sure, there's this chain of causal forces uh, uh, playing through it. We all, everybody accepts that. But at least in the stuff uh, uh, we've done, of course, ideology is significant. One of the points, uh, you know, is measured in terms, in various ways, in, in, uh, in terms of, you know, a set of position issues, factor scores on those, or in terms of questions about liberal, conservative, and so on. Those things have direct effects over and above the, uh, uh, the valence politics model that I've emphasized. And this is something that's true in everything we've looked at in Britain and Canada and the U.S. It's a common sort of thing. The composite model, the model Chris Aiken doesn't like, even though it's much more richly parameterized, actually typically wins out in terms of all the statistical yardsticks. Uh, um, so I don't think what you're saying, Alan, really, so, you know, in terms of what I'm hearing, I say, yeah, sure, people have got political beliefs, they've got values, they've got attitudes towards group, groups. They're, those things are fairly back, far back in the causal chain, but they're nevertheless quite influential. They, influ they influence a lot of the stuff that's more proximate to the vote. And if you're arguing that, I say, yeah, that's, that's exactly right. Cam Liddell had that, that on circa 1960, and I think it's still, it's still true. So, and, and, and the analysis show let me just add one thing, my own thought on that, that, that I think it comes back to this cross-pressures idea that I think early on, say March, if you're thinking about the CCAP data, there, there were a lot of Democrats who weren't sure they were going to vote for Obama. And that over time, they were pulled in, and that could be the effect. <laughs> their racial resentment wasn't diminished over time. I think it probably was overwhelmed by their realization of what happened to the economy and, and their increasingly negative feelings maybe about Bush. And so it would be interesting to look at those voters and single them out for special analysis and to see how they, they were moving over time and what was happening in terms of their, their own attitudes towards the body. Were they evaluating him more positively or just saying, ah, you know, 
One thing that's noticeable in the CCAP data is in the African American community, there is a dynamic uh, of increasingly positive feelings about Obama, the group of Obama, and it correlates net of a whole bunch of things with their increasing concerns about the economy. You can see I showed that one scatter plot, the blues and, and, and the white dot, or the blue, blue and red dots, and that that is an interesting thing. And it is part of more general. Okay. I think you're right off. Okay, Gary? Yeah, uh, two things. I wanted first, the second thing is to direct everybody's attention back to the question that you asked. What was the net effect of race in this election? I think, think back to the classic uh, uh, piece from 1960 where they parse out the exact 2.4% <laughs> net that, that Catholicism caused Kennedy. And uh, of course, the precision is because we have one instrument and, uh, <laughs> and very little technology to, to, play, to play with the results, and so we can get a number of believe because we have no alternatives. Um, so I, I'd like to see if anybody in the panel can address that. Um, but, but the other one is just a, a, a brief question for her. What, what was the uh, correlation matrix look like between those five different measures of race and racial attitudes? Yeah. I, don't think I know it. <laughs> Well, I know what stereotypes, black stereotypes minus white stereotypes, correlate with resentment, and they usually correlate in the bivariate, I think, around 0.25 to 0.3. So it's not that high. But um, there's an effective prejudice measure that was asked this this NES of admiration and sympathy for blacks. And typically, if you were just using the thermometer as your black affect measure, and this was one of Snyderman's critiques all along, is that that didn't correlate. So if you're saying symbolic racism is a measure of anti-black affect, but the, the effective prejudice measures those correlated 0.4. So. Is it, uh, that's one way of teasing out this question. Is it ideology or is it race? If, there's, mm-hmm. if they all load on the same thing, it's probably all race. Well, uh, but if they don't... Then there may be some I, I think there should be a high principle cor- uh, component underlying the five factor analysis for sure. Well, but, but, they, but that's a, a useful thing to test, I think, given the questions about the, the one key measure. But I want to actually go back to the Paul asset in the U.S. just now. How does one tease out the exact effect? I mean, in our Midwest paper, which is this is a derivative of, we actually tried doing it. Uh, but we did it by using uh, the mean on the, on the racial resentment variable and using that as a multiplier by the effect size. And then you begin to realize these things don't have a natural zero to apply. The mid, you know, what, what, where is the midpoint? I mean, it's not the zero. That is a zero meaning, well, on the stereotype measure, zero is pretty darn stereotyping people already. <laughs> um, you know, and you can't do that on the racial resentment either. So how does one tease these out for a net effect? I mean, I, well, I'd really be curious if the group of us together, anybody else. Well, I've always thought discussion. about it, and yeah. then that's why I end up just make, looking at the graphs and making the statement that it appears that racial liberals may have offset because I wouldn't know exactly what Herb was saying about what is the zero point? Does the liberal side mean exactly the same thing as the conservative side? So I, I, I haven't tried it. And, and I would add two things. The first is that the answer to your question, by the way, on the interactive correlation, even if you split the racial resentment measure into two measures, where you have the positively valence questions and negatively valence questions, if you factor analyze them, they all load onto only one factor. Yeah. The second I should is well below. It's just But But the question I would have for you is, you want a precise estimate of the effect of race on the election compared to what? 
And the reason, I, well, let me, the reason I say that is because race is deeply embedded in the American political party structure, as Carmine Stimson and lots of other people have talked about for, for, for a long time. And so, uh, as Paul pointed out, in, in, a, in an election where there are two unpopular wars, people using the phrase second depression, and an incumbent president with a popularity rating whose number begins with two, <laughs> the out-party candidate got only 43% of the white vote. So there is... There is an inherent, there's a, 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 a deep component of race built into the American party system. So is the question, was Obama hurt by his individual race in a manner distinct from the Democratic Party's racial penalty that it pays because of, of the overall party no, that, That's the question. Okay. Been, you know, Barry O'Connor, uh, white guy. Everything else is the same. I mean, the, the, what, the, the, what would the difference have been? That's, that's really the simple question. The, the, the closest thing we do in our paper to get at it is just to look at what the average of the forecast models are. And I'm sure Michael Lewis back will <laughs> we'll comment on this. You want to comment on this? Well, I have an answer yeah. to the question. Okay. <laughs> 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 I'm going to vote very kind of I have a paper that I did with Richard Nadeau and Charles Tien, which is coming out. And we make this calculation as five points. It's a fairly simple uh, calculation to make. It's plausible. What you do is you, let me just make the long story short, what you see among people who are racially resentful, the effect of economic attitudes on the vote is about half what it is among people who aren't racially resentful. So you say you do a scenario where imagine that there were no people in the uh, the population who had racial resentment make a prediction for the, the total vote, and you say, okay, as a function of the economy, let the economy work fully, and mm-hmm. then say we've got to make a subtraction for the people who have racial resentment because the effect of the economy is about half. So uh, if you work through, uh, it's a, you know, it's, it's an interaction effect, and if you just work through that interaction effect and aggregate it up, it's very clean. It's, it's not complicated statistically, and you get a prediction of five. Yeah. And that uh, that's our number. I'd be happy to send you the The paper. five being exactly one. Net loss. Okay. What Obama would have gotten five more points nationally than he got. And My, you think Obama would have got 58% yeah. of the vote. That's right. What constitutes no reason? Is it a is it a score of neither disagree or agree on all of them, or is it a score of strongly agreeing with the least racial resent, uh, resentful position. We took, we, we it's not, I, I'd be happy to give you the details in the paper. What you, the, the main issue here is whether, or which Michael's raised here, and he's, and he's working it with, with David really seriously, and this is, is this racial resentment cost canceled out by, by liberal esteem, what Snyderman calls esteem, and Paul and I have talked about this a lot, and in his work on this, he finds there are uh, white voters with racial racial resentment, but they're offset, well, they're offset to some extent by people who have racial esteem, and Paul and I have talked a lot about this. And he is working now on trying to figure out whether these things too net out or not. And I've taken, we've taken leaps that Paul as he told me, he's not ready to take yet, but, but you know, I'm older than Paul, so my life, you know, how much time left. So, <laughs> <laughs> uh, we, we have also measured 
of racial esteem in the same model and say, okay, let racial esteem cancel out racial resentment if it can. It doesn't. There's no, there's no subtraction. It's not significant. And basically that means that white liberals who were going to vote for Obama would vote for him anyway. Exactly. There's no additional boost for it. It's embedded in party recognition. Michael, Democrats. Are you saying that Hillary Clinton would have gotten 58% of the vote? John Edwards, before we the found out. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, the, the counterfactual that we explicitly address is who we, Richard Nadeau and I and Charles King in the paper, is what would have happened if, uh, if, if, if there had been no racial resentment in the uh, well, I think well, Edwards is a good example because he would have picked it all up in the South. Because well, that's those are not the counterfactuals. Kind of okay, but I'm going to suggest, by the way, that we all read Michael's paper. And there may be other points people want to make relative to this, but let's expand the discussion. Is there anybody else who wants to talk on exactly this point? Or should Barry, you do? I was just going to say that it doesn't quite answer Gary's question. You want to separate the race and candidate effects from attitudes towards the Democratic Party's position on racial issues. And the five-point effect seems like a composite of those two things. All we know is if we slid everyone up the scale on racial resentment, mm -hmm. how the vote share might be different. Mm -hmm. right. And so the, the appropriate question is, and, and this was raised just a second ago, it's not, it's not the total number of people with racial resentment and, and you're netting that out versus racial esteem. It's how many people who would otherwise have voted Democratic vote Republican on the basis of race? And, and how many people who would have otherwise voted Republican voted Democrat because they really wanted to have a black president? And Paul's my colleague and friend, but I'm going to disagree with him pretty seriously. I think that number comes very, very close to zero. Not that it's zero, but I just don't think that racial esteem is driving you know, lots of moderate conservatives to vote Democrat so they well, we have to factor in the higher black turnout and support for Obama, offsetting that. I mean, and, and that's a big number. And maybe the lower white turnout of people who are cross-pressured. I mean, Obama only lost Georgia by five points. I mean, obviously... And you only voted once. <laughs> well, no, no, I didn't. One piece of, piece of the, uh, outside evidence on this is, uh, you know, you look at all the elections since World War II, and you say, where did Obama's totals fall? They fall exactly in the middle. It was not a landslide. It was in the middle. Now, given the condition of the country, uh, economically and politically, going into this election, I don't think it's part of that. We don't have landslide elections anymore, Mike. Okay, well, good. this should be a dinner conversation. Helmut, <laughs> <laughs> go ahead. You okay, one, one, uh, one other question about Horvath and Vine. Now, you omit race as a variable because you say that's not a variation. On the other hand, we know that it's an incredible, makes an incredible difference uh, in the way that, that, that people are voting. And I just wonder how much you would that affect, let's say, your estimate for, for racial resentment? Uh, and how much, I mean, would it allow you to compare uh, 2008 with, let's say, uh, 19, 1988? Uh, I mean, I would assume that, that racial resentment plays a role even if a candidate is not black. I mean, because people have these, 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 these attitudes. And I think 
that, that you, I mean, I think you probably would have to redo the analysis just for whites because you say blacks are so uh, unified. I'm sure racial gender probably doesn't play a role among my, my our, our, our analysis is uh, non-blacks. Oh, okay. So it's, it does include Latinos, oh, okay. uh, Asian Americans, and so on. But you know, it's, we, we excluded African Americans each year oh, okay. in order to get comparability. But that does allow me to ask the question of some of the other panelists that did the whole sample and did racial resentment. How does racial resentment work when blacks are part of the sample? Well, we, because you do have well, them there, and how does that affect the estimate? Yeah, we, we uh, analyze all, you know, our analysis as all the respondents, uh, 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 the whites, the African Americans, Latinos, and so forth. And there's a, a very significant racial resentment effect, you know, over and above the controls for the, for the demographics. But the argument we're making is that the effect, like, first of all, we've got to separate out election outcomes from individual vote, and, and so there's very different kinds of questions. We've got to filter through the electoral college and so on to get up the, at, the, at, the, uh, at, the, at the aggregate outcome. But at the individual level, the argument we're making is that there is a significant direct effect, not terribly large, but there's a really big indirect effect in terms of how people are reacting to these candidates and that, in turn, is a key heuristic for how they're going to decide to vote in this uh, uh, situation, particularly in an election like this, where you know we've got this terrible economy, this unpopular, you know, two unpopular wars, et cetera, et cetera. So we're arguing it's a big effect and it's indirect. So um, the the past involved racism research, it's, it's usually whites only, but I was really big on including a, a, a black control because as uh, Gary was mentioning, we only have 75% of the electorate who's now white. So you can't really tell a story about the whole electorate if you're doing whites only. So the way we get around that is we have a chapter that breaks it down, each race and each ethnicity, and then we have uh, the larger chapters that we saw here. And we found that it doesn't make much of a difference whether you estimate it with blacks in the model or with white. And a lot of people think that our racial liberal story only comes from the fact that we left blacks in the model who are less racially resentful and who overwhelmingly support Barack Obama. But that's not that's not so. The, you get the same liberal action on the racial model. Okay. Anything else from the panel? Yeah. Uh, on this one or on something more general? Well, let me let me turn to some questions here, and then we'll come back to you. Sunshine, go ahead. Uh, I wanted to actually uh, comment on uh, Matt and Gary's paper. I wondered to what extent some of your conclusions <coughs> might just be driven by a lack of power um, on the, the the minority samples, and in particular the anti-black attitude is positive. And I just wondered if you had 900 cases for Latinos, if that would actually be significant. And, and, and so I would just encourage you to kind of think about that. And it would still be smaller, right? It's just you might actually get a significant effect. And then it becomes a question of are those differences actually statistically significant? And, you know, I can't, I can't tell from um, the, this particular paper. Yeah, we, I mean, that's obviously a concern because we only have 581 Latinos. And in the post-election sample of people who were recontacted, who said they were registered and said they voted, and then with other cases, I think it drops down to 345, uh, and so obviously that's the one thing that gives me a little bit more confidence is that we did try, you know, a lot of these uh, different measures of racial attitudes that uh, Herb and Chris talked about, and in all the cases, it did appear where they used the feeling thermometer, uh, 
policy attitudes, uh, racial resentment, et cetera, to be you know, a positive effect, but it was never in any of those, uh, um, any of those variables close to being statistically significant. And so across these different demands, there wasn't something that uh, that drove that. And when you put them together, there was no action either. And uh, um, we're going to have to think about that, maybe draw on some other uh, data that, that is larger. That well, or even, I, I mean, just do a little exercise. I mean, I don't, you know, so if you weighted the data to actually get an N equivalent with the white sample, you know, your your relative effect should stay the same. And what, what does that do? So the standard error. Yeah. Sure. So, so the answer, I mean, we don't know. We'll have to go look, but that's a good, and it's a good suggestion. However, I want to make sure that we, that we recognize that what we're talking about is statistical power on a slope whose intercept is extremely high in terms of support for Obama. That is that, and I've got some bivariates I could show you right next to you, where if you look at the AMP, which was run on the NES, if you look at uh, the racial stereotype questions, if you look at the racial resentment scores, and you break them apart into you know quartiles or cohorts or however you want to do it. Um, yes, you'll find that Hispanics articulating the most hostile attitude towards blacks are less likely to vote for Obama, dropping their, their probability of an Obama vote down to a shocking 0.68 or something like that. So you're still so is it changing outcomes is the question, and, I, and I'm not sure of that. But so we do well, have to change. And what the we power. find, I, I think that's a better answer. Is what we find with, with whites is it's really pushing them above or below the 50 percent yeah. level. Right, and for Latinos, if you find that racially resentful Latinos are voting for Obama at 68% as compared to 92% or something, I think it tells a different story. So I think we pitch it that way too. I think actually that point is one of my concerns, Michael, with your analysis, right? Because how much of, you know you're you're assuming this linear relationship by putting in this resentment scale, and so how much of your differences in predicted probability are really just being driven by? You know, you're running the Dillian effects or floor effects, and, and so even if you had to come up with some type of artificial place to, to break it, so that you could actually make a comparison between the, the liberal, racially liberal, and the racially conservative, I mean, that's the only way that I feel like you could really make a claim about one having a bigger impact than the other. And and one possibility is that there's not a natural zero point right. is to pick some baseline. So. Um, put it, you know, make the, the, the zero point the, um, the measure of African Americans. Like that, make that kind of where you break to, to, to define a racial liberal versus a racial conservative. And then you can see where the action is. In the ANES oversample of African Americans, I thought the, the finding that only half uh, of the African Americans place themselves on the ideological scale has all sorts of implications that are obvious, but uh, do you have any indication of what's causing that? I can think sophistication. We can also make the argument of this two dimensions, economic issues, social issues, and maybe they're just parsing it out in two different directions. Yeah, I, ju I just looked at that, uh, at both uh, putting that as the dependent variable, not specifying your ideology for Latinos and blacks, and for and just using demographics as the predictors. For Latinos, there's all sorts of predictors age, education, income, whether you're born, born or not. Uh, and for blacks, none of the demographics um, were predictors. It wasn't an education thing, sophistication thing. I think it's a different story. Perhaps it could be, and we need to get in there and figure out why people are saying that. Um, you know, in, in some ways, um, a rejection of that sort of system as fitting um, onto the African-American ideological, you know, that, that 
paradigm, that uh, dimension doesn't really apply, which is you know inherently uh, economic a dimension, yeah. maybe social dimension, but really there's a civil rights dimension and other issues that African Americans <laughs> might. Anecdotally, you get the Proposition Eight in California. Mm -hmm. I don't know what the official finding was either way on that, but you get these the, the massive turnout of African Americans in California, and yet. Allegedly, I would hear it after the election that they weren't voting for Prop 8. So I don't know if that's a social issue. Um, yeah, I can speak to that a little bit. So, I mean, the, the question has always been whether or not racial and ethnic minorities are socially conservative enough to trip them over to the Republican category. And this has been sort of the, the GOP dream, particularly with respect to Latinos. And the problem is that you never see on any MIP question that social issues ever get to the top 10, for that matter, for Latinos. For African Americans, the results of Prop 8 were very interesting because there was a lot of talk about this in the media because of the LA Times exit poll suggesting that huge black support for Prop 8, which overturned gay marriage in California. Um, but, in fact, when you look at it a little bit more closely and you use uh, some of the pre-election polls from Field and one <coughs> you do get higher black support for Prop 8, but it's not 70% like you've never seen in the exit polls. The exit polls um, there is an interesting uh, question about this, though, because when you actually control for uh, income education um, and uh, you know the usual usual suspects, and you look at the three measures of, of gay attitudes that are available in the NES, which are support for employment non-discrimination, support for adoption rights, and support for, for marriage, um, the racial Latino is never significant. Um, African American falls out once you control for religiosity in the gay marriage question, but less so in the abortion question. And interestingly, the strongest effect on blacks is on anti-discrimination statutes, where blacks are less supportive of anti-discrimination statutes protecting Latinos than any other racial or ethnic group. So there is an element of that there, but whether that maps onto ideology in the minds of the people who are asking the question, I don't, yeah. I don't know. <coughs> I would think a lot of it has to do too with the elite cues that are available. Um, it just doesn't seem like ideology has that kind of salience. In um, you know, we we talked, uh, you, know, you guys talked in a presentation about uh, linked fate, and I think a lot of times the discussion in the black community is, is about um, you know how it affects group interests more so than an ideological goal. Um, whereas I think that kind of thing could be more common, um, you know, in in other groups. Probably why you see it more. Uh, you know, on the conservative side where there's more homogeneity in terms of demographics, uh, there's not really a group interest that's usually there to appeal to. It's more kind of these ideological ideals, and you see so much more of that rhetoric on the right talking about being against liberalism and for conservatism and all these things when I think if you have a group focus for, for what your political goals are, ideology drops out as, as being really the... the and that would be Dawson. That would be Dawson's claim that, that, that the black utility heuristic <coughs> is the ideological dimensionalization of black attitudes, and that all political questions are judged on is a good group or not good group. And you can even fit in the attitude about employment non-discrimination protection for gays on that, because during the '90s, the, the religious right especially made an effort to try to suggest that you know gays are actually wealthy white men. And how dare they appropriate the language of civil rights, etc. Um, and, and did so somewhat some effectively. So, so maybe that's maybe that's the answer. Question back here, Bill. Go ahead. Yeah, to to uh, Matt and Gary about uh, ideological identification of minorities. I'm not sure 
a lot of us who study ideology would be terribly surprised by that. I mean, I think there's been a fairly substantial literature since the 1960s to suggest that African Americans in particular just don't view the world that way in, in liberal conservative terms. And I noticed a couple of times you, you said that minorities are more likely to say don't know or moderate on there. But is it really don't know, or are they the ones who are saying, oh, I don't think of myself that way? I mean, that, that was my impression, the, the, the escape clause before they asked right. them about that. Yeah, those are together, yeah. Okay, Which yes, yeah, I, I wouldn't yeah. put those okay. together. I think those okay. are two qualitatively different things there. And I think um, if, you, if you look at the levels of conceptualization, uh, and, and I, I tend not to think the levels of conceptualization as a sort of ordinal scale sophistication. I, I think the real distinction among the levels is the ideologues and everybody else. That, that's what the big difference is. They're, they're a measure of do people view the world in, in liberal conservative terms or not. And going back to the 1950s, and of course the, the sample sizes are all tiny, <coughs> certainly for African Americans, they don't show up in the ideologue level of conceptualization. And, and again, I, I always assumed Dawson's work and, and others who looked at African American political thinking compared to whites simply confirm this, that, that the liberal conservative continuum is not immediately relevant to, to the way African Americans think about, think about politics. Other questions, comments from the audience? Harold, do you have anything further to say? Harold, I cut you off at one point. No, no, no. Go ahead. Chris, I'll point out that last one. Um, um, Maybe that's one of the reasons why you, you, you see uh, less recognition of, uh, or less identification uh, as liberal because, um, okay, so a huge part of the Democratic constituency is African Americans. If they don't uh, really think of the world in ideological terms, then what's the added value of going out to campaign with them and say liberal this and sort of that um, if they're not going to respond to it? And the less that the elites are using those terms, uh, you know, to, to appeal to African Americans, if, if, then they're not using it for, for the rest of the Democratic constituency, and you have this kind of cycle where the terms doesn't get used much, and that's probably what's allowed it to be trashed and, and turned into a, a negative thing, is because the elites aren't defending it. And part of it is because their constituent constituency, a large part of it, doesn't really care about that term. I not thought about it that way, but it makes a lot of sense. A great deal of sense. Just one comment on that, which is uh, I wouldn't necessarily want to rely entirely on the liberal conservative identification term to uh, kind of measure the political orientations of African Americans. When you ask them issue questions on economic policy issues, this is true of Hispanics as well, they're very liberal. That's correct. Across the board, you know, healthcare, all the, the NES questions, which I don't even think are very good for the most part, but they're very liberal. And it actually turns out that you can look at you can break questions into four types, and it's only on one type, the social issues, that they're not shocking liberal. Right. But if you look at minority-specific questions, right. not surprisingly, they're extremely right. liberal. And on foreign policy. If you look at any sort of um, any sort of uh, public goods provision that is that's redistributive, they're right. very liberal. Right. If you look at general government spending on parks or the environment, they're still more liberal than one. Right. And it's only when you get to these social issues. Right. Which actually just points to the fact that maybe the question is just not adequately capturing. So it's a failure of the question as opposed to African Americans not thinking in ideological terms. Well, I think right? those labels don't necessarily, right. you know, they don't That's think of them the way that right. we I mean, I think, I think we have to be a little bit careful. Of it. And, and one of the nice things about these oversamples is you can look at things like, you know, exactly these types of questions. <coughs> 
Herb is standing, and I think that's a signal. If <laughs> <laughs> you want to make a quick, quick, quick technical question to Gary and Matt, is, uh, you know, ideology and asking the Latinos about the uh, ideology, have you experimented with asking them about left, right, and what was the ratio, and seeing if that, I think that would be worth doing. That's a good idea. No, I think there's a lot of a, a lot of when we talk to other people about this. A lot of the questions are about the translation. How do you actually translate the, the ideology question? Uh, and in everybody's own surveys of Latinos and Latino politics, they they don't use the exact same phrases all the time because and that points to part of the problem is that as we're discussing this, people might be drawing on either national origin differences or just differences of of what that word might mean. Um, and I think that reflects in the responses of an experiment. It's asymmetric though. Conservative seems to work in translation. It's it's the left of the dimension. Yeah, it's hard to in the middle. You know, this this question of the effect of race, I, I'm reminded of the, the issue that the Kennedy campaign dealt with in 1960, and that was what effect would his Catholicism have on both, not nationwide, but in enough states in a positive way to win him the electoral college. Victory, and that also is a quite. I mean, it's complicated enough to try to estimate what we, you know, what we think is happening in the national election. But when you begin to think of it state by state, it becomes even more complicated. So, now, I was a we we emphasized, of course, in 1960. Some of you remember <laughs> that campaign far better than, than I did. Well, let me stop on that note. Thank the panel for a really good session. <laughs> Those of you going to dinner, I think Dana's going to be at the hotel around 640. Uh, but actually, if you are able to stay on the same side of the street and walk north about three blocks, you won't possibly miss the restaurant. It's very easy. I see it's sunny out, so it should be good. Uh,